excited to be back in the driver's seat for the show. It's been a long hiatus. I know you guys have probably been missing uh, the show as well as we've been going through some crazy, crazy shit ever since the election. Uh, So much we can never possibly recap it all. As you guys know, uh, Joe Biden did indeed come through, recapture the blue wall, flip Arizona with that demographic, um, you know, realignment and the turnout surge from negative partisanship, uh, which is a a funny thing to mention today. We'll get to why in a second. And uh, a surprise extra bonus state in the form of Georgia, which is, uh, you know, something that I didn't think could actually happen. Total uh, product byproduct of Stacey Abrams' investment in in uh, GOTV infrastructure. You know, full time investment, not you know coming up two months before election day and thinking you can win a state like that. Um, so, um, but a bifurcated outcome because. Democrats totally dropped the ball in the Congress map, and not only do they not pick up the 10 seats that I forecasted that they would gain predominantly in the state of Texas, um, and uh, other forecasters expected as well. So, uh, you know, I consider more, uh, not that the forecast got the election wrong, more though that the Democratic Party underperformed what they should have been able to do in this cycle Um, and, uh, you know, it's a problem too, because Republicans are not well. I mean, this is a party that is, has really not just pushed out or exceeded or really stressed democratic norms and institutional norms and values. They have blown right past them. I mean, we were talking about things that Trump and his, his team and Ronna McDaniel, the, uh, RNC, Republican National Committee chair had been doing prior to the election that were concerning to me uh, in terms of, you know, suing states to make it impossible for them to count ballots before Election Day to create a uh, red mirage, which we now know they were able to do. I mean, that's exactly what we see and saw in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin on election night. Uh, We didn't see any ballots that were. Uh, arrived at election headquarters in those states, counted until the close of polls um, on election night. And that created a very lopsided vote count on election night, exactly what Donald Trump had worked and planned for over two months occurred. You know, the um, efforts with the USPS and getting those, um, uh, those lopsided returns on election night absolutely happened. The problem is, you know, that there wasn't just a 10,000 vote margin. It We're talking about 130, 150, 160,000 votes that were sitting there waiting to get vote, uh, counted and sitting there, you know, not arriving to the election office in the days after the uh, election. This, these were votes that were postmarked and sitting there waiting to get counted that night. You don't get by uh, a coup when you're talking about 160,000 votes out of 600,000 votes sitting at the election office well before election day. Thank God, right? Uh, So ultimately, though, what do we see? We don't see Trump pull back. We see him actually pull the effort to run the same coup plan, even though it's absurd at that point. And you see a lot of other people that were involved in the pre-plan, you know, bail, uh, Bill Barr, and, um, you know, Bill Barr and, and Chris Christie and some of the others that had been on board with a little backdoor shenanigans to help Trump out don't want to go forward with the same plan when you're talking about 160,000 vote margin. Uh, so Trump has to pull together a team of, you know, it's the island of mis- misfit toys, really, to go forward on these legal challenges. They end up, I think it was 59 to 1 in their legal um you know, claims. I mean, there's no court in America, luckily, not even a Republican appointed one that's going to allow you to steal 160,000 votes or 140,000 votes or whatever it was. Uh, So the institutions do hold, but, uh, and we see a couple of really brave Republican uh, players in this game stand up. The Georgia Secretary of State uh, comes to mind really in particular, 
But by and large, we see uh, the Republican Party collapsing. You know, 90 members or 126, we get 126 members of the House filing, um, you know, a, a letter to, uh, you know, uh, amica, amica's curry brief to um, support a, a lawsuit that's the most ridiculous i mean in the annals of american history uh, I'll, I'll be interested i'll challenge my guests who are more smart than i am and that you know that's saying something they're pretty smart um if there has ever been a suit filed in federal courts more ridiculous than the uh suit filed by the state of texas uh, and then it gets 126 House Republicans to file an amici brief to support it. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, and now now we're talking, we're hearing talk about, you know, possibly taking it, seizing the voting machines or, or taking it to a militia, uh, military coup. So, um, but we see Democrats failing at the Demo at the congressional level to win. And, and, you know, I've talked a lot about why that is. I'm not going to get too much into it today, uh, other than to say they, you know, um, that the, you know, uh, the Biden returns make it clear it didn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, the messaging was off, not running in-person voter contact is probably one of those things like TV ads because the data isn't great on, you know, the effect size for that stuff. But it's kind of like this, you know, if that assumes a stasis that, you know, your opponent's doing it and you're doing it. And therefore, it's kind of mad, like a mutual assured destruction scenario. So as long as you're both doing it, it doesn't have much impact. But if one person pulls out and stops and the other person keeps going, like then it's going to have a big impact. And I think that's what we saw with that in-person voter contact. I think what we saw was the Democratic campaign's ceasing that really hurt these democrats especially in places that we we were trying they were trying to expand in texas where candidates were going up against incumbents who had name recognition and they did not have any name recognition uh the biden campaign is saved by all the outside groups who continue to run that door in person field stuff on the biden team's behalf and really, in my humble opinion, saved by the Lincoln Project, who comes out and, you know, they fail to do what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was make Republicans vote for Joe Biden. Uh, when they asked me to be a senior advisor on the Lincoln Project, I said, I will, but I have to disclose two things to you. Number one, I do not think that you can get Republicans to vote for Joe Biden, and I probably will never be swayed to think any different. Now, if you can show me the data, like bring me some data. And then, I'll, you know, I'm obviously going to be persuaded on data. I, I can be persuaded, but you'd have to show me some data. Um, but, you know, in terms of actually getting card carrying Republicans to, to vote for Joe Biden, I'm very, very bearish on that. But I, I think your messaging is, aim, is aiming that way, but it's going to have a, it's going to actually have a good effect on those that small but still important pool of pure independents that are, you know, trying to make their decision. And also because their persuasion ads are our mobilization ads, like the left's mobilization ads, right? Their persuasion ads mobilize us. So um, I thought, you know, they're going to have a good effect in terms of mobilizing Democrats. Uh, I was all for that. And then the other thing, you know, was to disclose to them that I'm writing a book about how uh, the media, right-wing media, but also right-wing campaign and electioneering um, systems are destroying, destroyed the psychology of Republican voters. And they were pretty prominent stars in the book, you know, so I felt like I should probably mention I was writing that book about them if they were going to be on the Lincoln Project. Uh, people like Stuart Stevens, he has a great book out called It Was All a Lie. Um, I think he's reflected a lot on his own role in that, uh, you know, psychology of the Republican voter. Uh, Stuart Stevens, especially, you know, he's he's got that book, um, It Was All a Lie. I think he's really come to terms with his own role in destroying the psychology of, of Republican voters by overhyping everything and making everything sound really intense when it wasn't, you know? <laughs> so, um, anyway, you know, I, I think we're going to be talking quite a bit about that over the term of the, the, uh, show and, and, and looking at why Democrats underperformed, but it's, it's set the stage for one hell of a, of a Christmas, um, situation because we've got a runoff election 
down in Georgia for two Senate seats that are going to determine control of the Senate. And if we didn't have that situation going on, uh, what Trump is able to do right now would be different, right? So he's got a position of power uh, and some leverage over the Republican Party that he wouldn't have if, if, if it wasn't for this runoff that we're looking at in Georgia. And he has been able to leverage that, I think, to get Republicans to tolerate more than they might be inclined to do otherwise. Um, you know, that said, we were seeing Bill Barr, of all people, you know, quitting, um, you know, drawing a line in the sand again today, you know, and, and this is, uh, you know, pretty shocking to me again today, affirming that there was no mass voter fraud, which is, you know, Barr doing a solid for democracy, not that he is any friend to it, usually, um, but he is, you know, not willing to help Trump um, steal, steal a uh, second term presidency. So it has to be acknowledged that we're in this uh, weird space and then the Senate race is complicating everybody's ability to navigate with Trump and he's got 30 days left. So he has created a situation where about 30 million people think that there was mass um, you know, a conspiracy basically to steal the election. They, they kind of kept trying different things to see what would stick. It, you know, it's, uh, ultimately, I mean, you actually could see this happen in real time at these press conferences. They were, you know, making one allegation after the other. And then, you know, once they were losing people and losing lawsuits, almost, I don't remember if it was Giuliani or Trump, but one of the two of them just whipped out of, out of the air, basically. Well, we saw them, we have video of them carting, um, ballots to, to the back doors in Detroit. <laughs> All right. I mean, that's literally how the myth of a hundred thousand ballots being carted into Detroit comes about. It comes out of thin air. It's a thin air allegation that then becomes accepted fact on the Republican side. And you see right-wing radio hosts with grainy videos of back doors of brick buildings that may or may not be election offices and the Laura Ingrams and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, you know, with film of inside of election counting places that have a bucket that might get moved by one election worker and say, oh, see, red-handed, you know? And it's impossible to fight that stuff back because, um, you know, it... There's it, it just is. In fact, the the that particular video that I'm thinking about where it was a, a, a like a suitcase or some type of like a vessel that they moved from one spot to another. Uh, Brad Roethlisberger, the secretary of state of Georgia, you come to find out it was a Friday or, or so that 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 played out over a weekend. And you come to find out in a Monday press conference that they they had briefed Giuliani and the Trump team on that footage and explained to them exactly what it was to avoid exactly what they did with it. And they did it anyway. You know what I mean? So um, we're really in a situation now where we have 30 days and uh, a, a component of the electorate that's already predisposed mo to, to, to a topic that we're going to talk about today. And this is why I'm starting the podcast with this topic, because, you know, we already have blown through every red line I could have ever imagined. And I am a pretty, um, I'm a pretty, uh, dismal person. I don't get asked out to dinner twice usually. Right. Cause this is what I want to talk about. Right. Uh, so I never get a dinner date twice. I, uh, I always get one, one dinner date. The reason I, I was thinking about talking about this is, you know, we've, we've blown past every red line that I could think of. I mean, just way past it. I mean, I was dismal, coming in, trying to get people to pay attention to what Trump might do if he lost the election, um, you know, getting people to understand that they were putting chess, place, chess pieces in place to potentially try to reverse engineer a Trump victory if there was a narrow win. I, you know, I knew I sounded like a tinfoil hat person, but I felt like it was prudent upon me to do it anyway. You know, it, I was doing it in the public, but also in some 
pretty high level meetings, you know, and it's kind of unnerving to do that. You're trying to impress people, but also you, you're talking about these crazy things, you know, and you're like, Oh God, they probably think I'm a moron, but you know, you got to do it. Um, so, uh, anyway, but it turns out like I, I was way underestimating what they were willing to do way underestimating it. You know, I mean, Trump is, uh, you know, I didn't anticipate that they would just come up with a story that a third of the country now takes his gospel that Biden stole the election with a hundred. I mean, this is if you monitor right wing media, and I know my guests that I have today do. This is this is an accepted fact now that that a third, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, there was a conspiracy on the Democratic side, the professional Democrats, whoever these people are. Um, you know, carted in a hundred thousand ballots in Wisconsin and stole the election from Biden. That's how it happened. I mean, it's something that literally um, came out of Giuliani's mouth on a whim, and now it is their theory of the case. And you know, there's no obviously. It's not just that there's no evidence, as the media always says. There's no evidence to support that. It's a lie. It is a flagrant completely made up bullshit lie <laughs> it's you know, and uh it's uh corrosive not to say the least about our democracy the question is is it also potentially going to cause you know violence right as we move in to the actual inaugural period and you know i i wanted to bring in today three experts who are even better versed in the area of political polarization than I am because uh, they write and research it much more extensively than I do. Um, you know, I would call myself like a, you know, dip uh, into the polarization research and they, they, they are submerged and they are submerged in some crazy shit. Okay. I name dropped them in uh, my Bill Maher appearance uh, and the audience was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that's because the shit that they study, uh, you know, it's called radical partisanship, right? Uh, it, it touches on something called lethal mass partisanship, right? And that is whether or not people are willing to, to inflict bodily harm on each other, right? And uh, cause violence. Like, are they willing? It's negative, and it's rooted in this concept of negative partisanship, which, by the way, I have another guest on who is much better versed in negative partisanship because he and like my adopted mentor from afar, um, you know, the person whose research inspired me my whole time that I was in a different graduate program. Um, you know, they are the people who have brought negative partisanship to my attention and I adapted it to turn out, right. To like, whether it was going to motivate people to vote, um, but I brought him on cause he's got a brand new book. That's the first book on negative partisanship and it really gets into the roots of it, right. And how it functions in the political system, especially in terms of political elites. So they're here and I'm going to introduce them to you now. And, uh, I'm really excited to do that. Uh, so I've got with me, I've got Nathan Calmo and Liliana Mason, and they kind of come as a pair because they are the dismal people that study political violence, right? In the form of uh, lethal mass partisanship. <laughs> uh, Nathan, your your institution again is is LSU. Is it mm -hmm. LSU? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. And Liliana is at University of Maryland. Yep. 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 And um, yeah, and then I've got Stephen Webster. He is at what university again? Indiana University. Indiana University. I've got Stephen Webster here. He's at Indiana University. And uh, again, you know, out with his first, it's your first book, right? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations on that. It is uh, a great book. I read it. Um, I took copious notes. And, uh, you know, again, I mean, it's, you know, obviously, you know, a, a book that I'll be citing continuously. So, um, yeah, and, and, and his book is called American Rage. It's actually got a subtitle, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. And, you know, like me, you know, big believer in the idea that things, unfortunately, in America are motivated by those negative emotions, not by peace and joy you know it's it's not the lady oh we go high 
uh, it's it's unfortunately the low, right? And the Republican Party, uh, you know, just as an aside, gets this, right? And that's why they are always beating Democrats in electioneering because they their electioneering always goes low, right? All right, cool. So I'm so excited to have you guys on, um, you know, to have a political science, like, total panel here. Uh, we got to keep it not too wonky, though. So uh, we want to avoid academic, you know, conference uh, level of wonk. But, you know, at the same time, I really don't want to deprive the audience of getting into the heart of the research, you know? Um, so can you guys start off by telling me a little bit about, you know, tell, why don't we start with Stephen? Because I think, I feel like ne the negative emotions, the groundwork, right? The concrete of how you get to the point where you want to kill somebody for not being on your team, right? So Stephen, tell us a little bit about how negative uh, emotion, you know, shapes, um, you know, shapes our, our politics so badly in America. You know, I think negative partisanship and these sort of negative emotions that you've discussed are, are quite powerful in shaping American politics. Um, so a lot of my work on anger starts to, to unpack some of these consequences. And so one thing that anger in particular does is it causes Americans to lose trust in the national government. Um, that's problematic for a whole host of reasons, I think some of which we're seeing play out, unfortunately, uh, in this sort of days that we're in right now. Um, you know, something that I think is, is quite related to the work that, that Nathan and Lily are working on is that anger can have these, you know, really unfortunate consequences for how we deal with those who disagree with us politically. So I've done some work that shows that anger causes people to uh, view those who disagree with them politically as less intelligent than they are and as a threat to the country's well-being. And so this anger is, is sort of fusing the personal and the political, which, as, as my, my colleagues here can tell you better than I could, uh, can lead to some very unfortunate consequences. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it's not likely that political elites are going to stop appealing to our anger um, because our anger helps them get reelected. And so this, this anger and this negativity can paper over the differences that we have with our own party's candidates. Uh, and so the, the sort of unfortunate thing about American politics today is that it's really governed by sort of negativity rather than bonds of affection. Yeah, didn't you didn't you look at too for one of the things that you used to quantify the rise of negative partisanship, like the rising incidence of straight um, ticket balloting? Like, and uh, didn't you find a relationship between anger and straight party um, like ballots? So the negative partisanship work was really motivated by this puzzle that we see. A record number of Americans saying that they're political independents, while we're also seeing people voting straight ticket more than ever. And so that's that's quite quite bizarre that both of these things are true. Uh, and, and so the work that you're mentioning is really motivated by this puzzle. Uh, and so the, the answer that Alan and I offered in that piece was that, you know, people are really voting against parties rather than for parties. And so it's sort of a, a reorientation from earlier years when, you know, I liked my party or uh, you know, I'm a Democrat because my, my dad is a Democrat or something to, to more of a story where it's not that I'm a Democrat. I'm just uh, not Republican or I'm not a Republican. I'm a, not a Democrat. And so it's this sort of voting against that's that sort of reoriented electoral behavior. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, when I pick it up, um, negative partisanship as, as the concept I start talking about in terms of electoral uh, behavior for my 2018 forecasting work that's what i talk about too i talk about it as um you know it's a it's it's making the vote a vote against right like it's you know it's about i've got to come out and keep this thing from happening and this thing is donald trump winning right it's not about i've got to come out and you know get things to to happen for me so much as keep things from happening to me, right? And that's a negative thing. I mean, that's a, you know, it's a negative association. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the the straight ticket voting part comes in with, you know, some work that, that people like Dan Hopkins have done looking at what we would call the nationalization of American politics, right? And so so people are viewing politicians of all levels through the the lens of national politics. Um, and so I think when you pair these things, you know, that that's that's quite powerful. Um, I would note that, you know, I, I think we need to wait and see, you know, for for what the data holds in 2020. But there's at least some suggestive evidence that 
there was some split ticket voting in this election, right? Part of the, the Democrats' lament is that they, you know, underperformed down ballot. And I think it's plausible that this is because there were, you know, maybe suburban Republicans who were fine voting for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, but but didn't want to vote for Democrats down ballot. And so I think it's going to be interesting to to look at this data and see sort of what we know to to be true having continued versus what sort of needs a little bit of a refinement. And I know some preliminary data suggests it's actually not that, right? That it's actually abandoned drop-off voting from um, Democratic, sur- like pe- coalitional surge that voted for Biden, but didn't have a motivation to fill out the rest of the ballot, right? So, um, but, you know, I'm waiting too for the voter files to get updated so I can look at it. What would you say, what would you say, um, <laughs> How come Democrats don't seem to have, I don't know how to really put this, like they're not, they don't do this anger thing naturally as well. Why Why do you think that is? You know, I think there's potentially a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I, I would say that it's not the case that anger isn't effective for Democrats or that Democrats aren't angry because anger does work among Democrats and Democrats are angry. I, 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 think, <laughs> yeah. I think part of it is that I think the nature of, of liberalism in the United States, you know, where, where most liberals are Democrats, is that you're trying to sell people on a vision for something new, right? And so you're trying to sort of get this mental image of a better world for people. And so it's hard to, to be angry about that. Right? I think it's easier for uh, people on the political right to, to point to things that exist and say, this is why this is bad, you should be upset about this. And so I think part of it comes down to just the governing philosophy of the two parties. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's the case that, that Democrats don't appeal to anger, right? I mean, when, when Barack Obama was running for election, he was, you know, eliciting anger at George W. Bush for, for cutting taxes and running up the deficit and going into Iraq, right? So, so it's not the case that anger is only found among one party. It, it is, in fact, a, a, bi, a bipartisan emotion. Um, I just think the, that the ways that the parties appeal to these things are, are a little bit different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, okay, so uh, I've got data I've collected at some point. I'll eventually hopefully use it or, you know, give it to someone else to use. But I had, a, you know, I have all the campaign ads in 2018. I had someone collect them for me, uh, a research assistant. And, you know, what I knew she would find for me is that in the 2018 cycle, the um, none of the Democrats would run ads anti-Trump. Okay. Now think about that for a minute. <laughs> like that's insane, right? Like you've got a election cycle that you're running. It's a midterm effect. The midterm effect is a referendum on Trump. He's the most unpopular incumbent. I mean, George Bush in his second term, he starts to hit that point in um, two, 20, 2006 is pretty equal, right? But in the case of Donald Trump, like there's a special like edition, right? And um, you know, the you would think, you would think, I mean, Michael Steele, who's the ex head of the RNC, uh, you know, when when he and I talk about it, he's like, Oh God, man, we would have run we would have run hang hung uh Donald Trump around the neck of every single incumbent, like uh like an albatross. It would have been incredibly painful for these incumbents because He's so unpopular and voters for congressional races that na- what it means, by the way, listeners, what nationalization means and does is it takes into account that regular voters, not you, because you're listening to this podcast. So you are not a normal human being. You are super califragilistically more informed than the average person. And therefore, you can't use yourself as a a barometer to judge how the average American is because you are way above average in terms of your interest in politics or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Uh, Average Americans do not listen to political podcasts. They don't know who Mitch McConnell is. They don't follow any of that crap. So, you know, you really have to meet them where they are and, and, and they don't care about Congress. They have kind of tiered like things that they do care about though. And the one thing, you know, that's highest on that tier is the presidential shit. So like, Obama and Trump and what Republicans figured out pretty early on. And that's why Francis Lee, I think Francis Lee's the writer of the book that 
looks at nationalization, right, everyone? Uh, yeah. Dan Hopkins. Oh, Dan Hopkins. Dan Hopkins. Um, what what they what he what he what why he finds like that that Congress races have been nationalized as a product actually of Republican strategy to get find some damn way to get their voters to show up and vote in elections for Congress so that they would have a competitive edge against Democrats, right? So thinking about it not from our lens, an academic lens, but thinking about it from the party lens of I'm a Republican strategist and how do I win shit, right? That's the goal. They do, then they figure out, well, you know, if you just tell the voter, you know, it's about Donald Trump, they don't give to, you know, they don't care who, um, you know, Ted Cruz is and they don't give a shit about the Senate. But if you tell them, hey, this is helping Donald Trump, they might show up, right? And it's not, you know, like all things in these political experimental things is not a huge effect, but it's a little bit of an effect. And it and it made more people vote in state legislative elections, more people vote in congressional elections. So when we say that something has been nationalized, that's what we're talking about. It has been um, tied, even if it doesn't make perfect sense, to something national like abortion or gun rights even if it's a state or local issue uh, so that people will care about it because they don't care about state and local issues. So that's what that means. Um, all right. So Democrats just don't though have anywhere near that, that anger and, and it's because they aren't stoked about it. I certainly don't advocate that democratic campaign operatives do what the Republican um, electioneers have done to their base though, because they have driven them nuts as I've talked about before. So, um, all right. So Liliana and Nathan again, talk about lethal mass partisanship, which is negative partisanship grounded, right? How would you guys explain lethal mass partisanship in your own words? Uh, so, um, this is Lily Mason. Um, I would actually just like to comment on one thing that Steven said, uh, yeah, just yeah. to clarify. Uh, one of the reasons that I think the parties have different opportunities for, for campaigning is that um, when people lose trust in government, conservatives win, right? Yeah. That oh, is, yeah. That's the goal of conservatism is to make people not believe that government can help people. Uh, so it's actually in the interest of the Republican Party to reduce trust in government, and it's actually in the interest of the Democratic Party to increase trust in government. And that's a really hard thing to do when the other party's actively destroying it. So I think that connection between anger and loss, and loss of trust that Stephen was talking about is a really, really important one. Um, and that we shouldn't forget that there's sort of an asymmetry between the two parties in that. Yeah, that is such a great point. And, um, you know, and, and when you're putting people into government who, like DeJoy, right? I mean, DeJoy, other than like, yeah, sure, Trump, I'm going to try to help, like, in my own little way, set up the conditions where you might be able to back engineer a victory if it's a close election. That's part of it for him. But the meat of it really was, oh, here, I have this, I'm a private sector dude. I want to privatize the post office. I'm getting put in to this organization to to totally... Um, you know, destroy it. Right. Oh, and he's got an ideology to do it. Right. Like this is his life dream, right. To get in there because he hates government. And, and, and so, you know, yeah, when you are doing that, you know, and that's a point Democrats don't really make to voters, right. Here's, here's a party that hates government They're, and they keep getting in charge of it and um, destroying it intentionally and that kills you, like literally kills you in times, right? So it's a, it's a, that's a good messaging idea. Um, so um, anyway, okay. So back to it then. The um, in your own words, and kind of frame it. I I would like if you can kind of frame it in in context of this month that we're living through, this last two months that we've lived through, and the month we're facing. Because I think people. You know, I know I'm concerned, you know, and I'm not, I definitely try never to be like, I definitely never want to be a fear capitalist, you know, uh, the very people that I, I, um, uh, criticize so much who are in enriching themselves. Like, you know, so far, nothing that I've done has ever enriched myself. Uh, but I am now embarking in two new, uh, ventures that will be monetized and I don't want to 
do things that will enrich me um, by making people fearful. But at the same time, I'm not going to ignore this is a really critical time for democracy. And I feel, if anything, people aren't taking it as serious. And I feel, you know, it's a strategic approach. I think Biden, you know, Biden's approach with, with Trump makes sense to me to, to, cause that's exactly what Trump wants him to do is to pay attention to him and to build it up and to get all heated. Right. So, um, you know, I think depriving him of that has been a smart strategy, but I do worry that people are not taking Trump serious enough that we're relying on these random almost like random acts of kindness right uh we're so we're we're relying on random acts of civility to save our save ourselves right like the brad roethlisberger could be some other person like and not and not be like no we're not going to do that you know and and i god those are those are such tenuous things to rely on saving democracy on, you know, like, uh, so tell me, tell, I guess like explain your research concept more in today's contemporary environment, if you could. Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you kind of the definition of what we're doing, um, we basically think of this as like three escalating concepts. And so the, the most common, um, belief that we're finding in the American public is, um, basically believing that people in the other party are evil, um, that they're threats to the United States, um, that they're like animals, right? Dehumanizing them. That's sort of the step step one, and it's the most common, and we have up to 60% of people agreeing with th these types of things. Um, and then the, we have like a middle step that we call schadenfreude, which is sort of like not hoping for violence against other people, but if something bad happens to the other side, they're not too upset about it. Um, and then the third level is actual advocacy for violence. So saying, you know, it's okay if my party um, uses violence to to advance political goals. Um, you know, it, how you know how likely would you be to um, send a threatening message to a regular person on the internet from the other party in a way that makes them feel frightened, um, or to threaten the other party's leaders? How acceptable is that? And so we find much lower levels. Of, of approval of those types of things, right? So something like violence is, is much less popular than, for instance, calling the other side evil. But, uh, but we still have, you know, depending on the year, between five and 15% of, of American partisans, you know, saying, yeah, violence is an acceptable, um, an acceptable thing to use for political ends. Um, now, one of the issues I think that we're looking at right now and that, you know, we've been talking about, Nathan and I have been talking about and worrying about is, is this idea that um, some of these attitudes are also connected to uh, these kind of anti-democratic attitudes. So, you know, like delegitimizing elections, for instance, um, uh, approving of secession, right? Like things that are sort of wild and crazy that we just asked about and all of a sudden people answered, you know, surprisingly in the affirmative. Can um, I can I interrupt real quick? So you yeah. guys have like a live survey you're good, you're doing or something like that? We have we so we've been doing a survey basically every year since 2017. Oh okay okay so you um, have like a annual survey you did. We have a yeah we have actually a bunch of different surveys that we've sort of put these items onto and this okay. it's a giant mix of, of so so you are basically though able to collect data on these topics in real time over this time period. Yes. That's going to be really, really fascinating, guys. Yeah. We've got yeah. trends. We've, we can see trends. In it are, and are you releasing that data somewhere, like on a website, or are you doing anything like that with it other than the book? Or Yeah, so we're definitely reporting it in the book. Um, I think uh, we ultimately want to use it to write a couple of articles and that before we – We've, sh I mean, we've shared it, a, a, you know, with like one person or two people every once in a while, just for like their private research. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, we want to get as much out of it as we can. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Of, it's a little yeah. messy too. Yeah. No, it's fascinating though. Yeah. Uh, but the, so I was just going to say we're. I think we're going to try to be public facing about some of the um, some of the big takeaways as we get the data in, and particularly as we see it useful for. Um, big public concerns of, about what's going on. A lot of the work that we've done um, so far is maybe less surprising than it was when we started thinking about it. The, the, the backdrop for this was 
we were both dissatisfied with the ways that we've thought about um, negativity in um, in the mass public. Uh, that measures that we have all all of us on this panel have used um, with thermometer scores about how warm or cold you feel towards the parties. We thought if you think about our politics now, uh, if you think about American politics historically, if you look across nationally at other countries that are going through difficult times, these measures come nowhere near the extremes that we know that politics can get to. And and we were concerned about the direction that things were going in 2017. And so we started to say, why don't we map the extreme attitudes now and see where we're headed and, and try to get ahead of what we expect is coming. We actually, we actually originally did not think. We said let's let's include some really crazy items like violence, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, what are some examples <laughs> of those? Do you, um, are me, you able to share? I don't want to yeah. push you guys to share anything you're not willing to share. So, <laughs> no, but I if mean, you're willing, like let's let's hear it. Let's go saucy. Uh, yeah. So I mean, we've asked you know if a if a politician from the other from, if if you heard a politician had died of cancer. Um, would, would your feelings about that depend on whether they're a Republican or Democrat? If you heard a politician had been murdered, would your feelings about that depend on whether they're Republican or Democrat? We, um, we asked people to think about the Gabby Giffords shooting and the Steve Scalise shooting and then and just to gauge their responses and whether that, you know, thinking about that experience um, activated these attitudes. We've looked at um, these kind of violent attitudes across um, periods of time when there were when there was violence and seeing that um, that violent attitudes increase when there is violence when there are violent political acts going on um, so uh, you know we really yeah, did wait a minute you so you you tell me a little bit about that that was during the week in 2018 when the guy was sending the pipe bombs to yeah, yeah, yeah. the Democrats and also in the same week the the tree of life synagogue shooting happened yeah God, that was yeah so that was a bad week, but we happened to have a survey in the field during that week. Okay. So we could measure pre and post that week, sort of the average levels of of um, of these violent attitudes, and among and we could also look, you know, um, comparing kind of people's attitudes, the same people pre and post because there was a pre and post um, uh, survey. Uh, it's that's good. we don't need to talk about that. It's too complicated, but. Um, but basically, we we found you know average levels of of approval for political violence increased substantially after that week, and then now that effect decayed really that's quickly. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. It went away pretty soon, so it only took a couple days. Yeah, but it, like it was a decay. A, yeah, yeah, it was a giant spike, and then and then a quick decay. But you can imagine if we were having a lot of these events. No um, doubt. No doubt. We might have yeah, it reminds me of that guy that did the uh, <clears throat> you know the Google <clears throat> data. I love it's all uh, uh, everybody lies that book about everybody lies where he looks at Google data and finds out like you know ever in India like they look up breastfeeding men or <laughs> is like the most famous thing or what. I it's a great book. It, it looks at how much survey data is off compared to what people do on Google. Um, but anyway, it, it, what you were just saying reminds me of that book because it, um, you know, just, just how the data, you know, came about and, you know, it, the discrepancies and stuff. But anyway, yeah, it's really cool. So have you tried any, so you're asking people directly, very directly, if, you know, it was this, if a Republican, da, 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 are you doing anything, uh, you know, um, implicit or uh, kind of like hidden? So we have um, some behavioral measures where we ask people, it's not implicit, but we ask people um, to, you know, uh, assign a painful level of noise to a person who lost a, a competition. Um, they've got headphones on, they participated in a competition, and then um, the people, you know, the person who loses the competition has to be punished with a painful noise in their headphones. Uh, and we asked our respondents to assign the level of noise. And, uh, and so if we describe the person as a Democrat or a Republican, uh, it's, it's, it's related to how painful the noise is assigned. So people are more willing to assign pain, very painful levels of noise to people outside of their party rather, people, rather than people inside of their party. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we have another one with a hot sauce experiment. So, you know, giving people uncomfortably hot levels of, of hot sauce. And again, there's a, par there's a partisan effect where people actually, you know, 
harm. They, they decide and Stephen, I'm in their book. I told him, Nathan, just randomly, I told him, I was like, dude, I went to go get my back. Sh- I mean, I don't know if Stephen knows the story, but I went and got my back shots. And um, like, I, I'm kind of friends with my pain management doctor. So we shoot the shit and she, she follows my wacky career, you know? So I was just shooting the shit and, and talking about, you know, I said something about taking down Trump and she, and the guy's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you know, the nurse, this is a male nurse, big, you know, he is obviously like a, he's like a tall, white, working class nurse, you know, smells like cigarettes all the time, you know? And, uh, and he's like, wait a minute, what did you say? You know, and I'm like, oh, you know, I should have, and I kind of smelled trouble, but I was like, it was too late, you know? And anyway, he jabs me really hard with the needle with no warning. <laughs> and like, as so I tell Nathan the story, I'm like, I'm like, man, I got some lethal mass partisanship, dude. Fucking my nurse came after me. And like, and then like he, he stabs me, Steven. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, don't, uh, you know, uh, you know, what, what, where is the warning, man? Usually you give me a warning, say it's going to be cold, you know? And he's like, no warning today, you know? And I'm like, Trump 2020, man. <laughs> and it was so funny. Like, and like the doctor was cool, you know, they could tell I was cool with it, but like, what if I wasn't like, what if I was a person that was normal, you know? You know, I, I think, you know, if I was going to make the, the sort of connection between what I study and what, what Nathan and Lily are, are, are tapping into right now is you, you probably made your nurse angry and that caused him to take some action to assuage his anger. Um, generally, you know, people punch their pillow or they go for a run or, or they have a beer or something. But, you know, I, I think and, you know, <laughs> I, I hope they're wrong. But but if Lily and Nathan are right, you know, th- this anger might be leading to some, you know, acts of physical violence. Um, perhaps ones that are, you know, are, are more serious or, or more consequential than the one you experience. And, and that's, that's worrisome, uh, to, to put it mildly. Yeah, I know. It was really, um, I mean, it was funny, right? Cause we all laughed and, uh, but it was also, you know, you know, I've been thinking about that shit a lot this month, you know, cause like Trump's Trump, Trump has no self-control. Right. Like he's got no even now after a week of getting hammered for this Russia um, uh, hack. Right. Which is really concerning. Right. I mean, Russia was in some of our most important, you know, uh, government agencies. We, they're in there now. We don't even know where they are. Like, we don't know if they're in they're out. We don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's you know, it's a huge problem. He's been completely silent about it. He certainly isn't capable of retribution you know and then today he finally breaks his silence and the and he minimizes it okay he tries to act like it's no big deal which is what he always does when it's a big deal <laughs> and in my opinion usually means he's done something terrible involved with it you know and uh you know now we've now we're gonna go through this month and you know they've they've already gotten to the point where they're they're putting feelers out about having a military coup. <laughs> like, you know, and here's the thing too, like people keep talking about, oh, our institutions are winning. They're like, our institutions are holding, look at them hold. And I'm like, no, dude, the main fucking institutional mechanism was the electoral college in 2016. Okay. The electoral college in 2016, before you get down to all the other fucking shit about it, which is, you know, small states and slave states and all that crap. At the end of the day, the founding fathers are like, okay, we're going to give the people the vote and the people are stinky and uneducated. Okay. (laughs) We're going to, we're not going to have a very expansive definition of people, but we're going to have some people and they're not us. They're not just us. They're other people and they might do something ludicrous. They might vote for some ludicrous person and we want a safety valve to override them. That's what the electoral college is designed to do. It's designed to say, Hey, you voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. Not going to happen, dude. You know I mean? That's what they should have been doing with it. Like it's already failed us. Right. You know? And so I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know, you know. I <laughs> I mean, I I would just I actually I would just add, and maybe this is what Nathan was about to say. Also, 
Um, that one of the things that, that that I find worrying about this period where, you know, Trump is saying these insane things and, um, you know, advocating military action, these types of things, one of the things that we find is that leader message, the mess, you know, the things that the leaders say uh, really affect the, the amount of violence that people approve of. There are significant effects. So what Trump says, you know, if he's saying things that are pacifying, then people's levels of of approval of violence will decline. And if he says things that are that are inflaming, then we need to start being worried about what people are really believing is acceptable behavior. That's exactly the point. I mean, you know, that is the biggest problem, right? The mass public is super sensitive to elite Q, and Trump is fully capable of telling armed white dudes in Michigan you know, to, to storm the Capitol there, to take it over, to, you know, possibly shoot people. I mean, he, 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 he probably supported, he probably in his heart of hearts probably supported the plan to at least kidnap, maybe not the execution part, but he probably supported the plan to, to take out. So this is the scary thing is that, (laughs) um, actually, let me start with the reassuring thing first. Uh, a a Yes. No, no, do it the other way. (laughs) One of the surprising things that we found in our 2018 survey was we we looked at the connection between confidence in the election and support for a range of radical ideas, including violence and other ways of rejecting the election. And we were surprised to find that uh, in 2018, there was not really much of a relationship at all between how confident people were. And there was a lot of lack of confidence in, in that election uh, nonetheless, there wasn't much of a connection between that and people's extreme attitudes. That doesn't mean that individual people aren't going to be radicalized by having those views. And you, and you see some of that now with some of the death threats, um, um, somebody running a truck off the road a, a day or two ago, um, those kinds of things. But what's really scary now is that what, what that suggests is you need elites to be even more explicit, not just saying the election is illegitimate, but here's what you need to do about it. And, and we're starting to hear that with the talk of, of a military intervention and those kinds of things, that's getting more explicit uh, in a way that could, could really uh, facilitate uh, people acting out on that, those violent attitudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Liliana is, is right. Like the thing that could save us, the thing that could put a stop to it, the only thing, in my opinion, that could, could intervene is Mitch McConnell and like the like the the really like a group of republican figureheads you know coming in and being like you know no there was no fraud these allegations are completely made up the president has lost his mind <laughs> like you can't do violence you have to believe in the election results this is america like they can't allow him to just continue to go and on the stump, Purdue and Loeffler are, are 100 percent, you know, telling their voters, yep, there was 100,000 ballots shipped into Detroit so that they can have these damn Senate seats and hold on to power. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So, uh, so Stephen, you know, one of the other things that stood out to me about your book is the focus on the cable news channels, you know, MSNBC and Fox. And, you know, frankly, I'm always hesitant to make them apples to apples, right? They're not apple to apple uh, networks. Uh, MSNBC certainly has a uh, partisan, a very partisan uh, lineup um, in terms of its uh, programming and not, and not just in the editorial uh, formats at night. It's, uh, you know, very, um, you know, liberal Latin uh, all the way through now it's uh you know daytime programming as well but it doesn't put um you know fake uh, fake data and fake information on there it's fact-checked and and correct it's got a huge bias but it's not uh fake and uh and it just really doesn't deserve to be compared to fox which is you know actively um telling people things that aren't true every day so uh but you know they are um comparable here because they are um you know supporting a team uh pretty obviously and so in your analysis you you find out or you figure out that um you know their rhetoric 
They use more anger-inducing rhetoric. You you say when they're when they're uh, you know when the uh, when the when there's the White House is in the opposition party's hands, right? Because their own negative partisanship, these hosts especially, are are stoked, right? So like they're living, they have negative partisanship coursing through them, and they are expressing it, and the net and it really shines through the network. And um, you know, I I think that stood out to me. Because I, I I alluded to the fact that I'm looking at influencers. I mean, I call not all of them, but I call um, a lot of people. And there's some on the left too. The bulk of the research is really focused on the right, on people like Ben Shapiro um, and uh, you know uh, Sean Hannity and, and Rush Limbaugh. This industry that I call fear capitalism, which is really an industry that is you know bent on making money by 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 making people afraid of each other right uh by telling you know people hey you know the black the and i'm quoting them not you know it's not certainly not how i refer to to black uh people but this is how they do oh you know the blacks are going to show up they're going to infiltrate your neighborhood you know they're going to come you know the, the trump literally ran ads simultaneously this year in the election on television in michigan ads that showed you know scared white middle class housewives in you know michigan or wisconsin you know afraid to come out of their homes in the distance you couldn't see but you knew that they you know there were black and latino people trying to in- infiltrate and rob and steal their house or rape and pillage them and then you know th- the same night the same day they were micro targeting black young black uh voters male and female on the computer on youtube or whatever ads trying to make joe biden the racist in the race you know um you know just absolutely um you know really really crazy um bifurcation of messaging um but you know able to do it because they've got this network that live breathes and exists as a state propaganda network especially the last four years i mean they they were bush friendly in 2000 and 2004 2008 and that was there's no doubt about that but i would not have called fox a propaganda network during those years, I mean, they get a little propaganda heavy on selling the war, <laughs> but every network was selling the war. Uh, there really was a bipartisan affair, uh, but this it's like state run TV over there now. So tell me a little bit about like what you think the future is as we come out of this administration, you know, assuming we survive this 30 days and Trump goes to the winter white house or whatever, like, what do you see as the future coming in um, this next you know, year, especially? Oh, man, I think if I knew the, the definitive answer to that, you know, that, that, w- that would be great. Um, you know, I, so I, I do think that, you know, what, what happens to Trumpism after Trump is probably the biggest and most important question uh, in American politics, because it has implications for, you know, everything we've been talking about today. Um, you know, I, I think we're likely to see Trumpism in perhaps a slicker package. Right, so you think of guys like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, both of whom have presidential aspirations, right? So I, I think you know to some extent there there will be a, a sort of Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. I think some of that is fueled by the media trends that that you've pointed to. Um, you know, I I am certainly not a, a communication scholar, um, but I do present some evidence that you know both sides are trying to elicit anger. I I, I do think you're right that. There are some real qualitative differences between Fox and MSNBC. Um, some work um, by uh, people who are, who are more versed in communications, like, like Dana Young, for instance, would tell you that part of the reason the right appeals to anger is because this is just sort of the psychological bent of people who are ideologically conservative, right? Um, so, I, you know, I do think there are reasons um, that have been documented by, by, you know, great scholars showing that there is this sort of, you know, predilection for, for right-wing media to stoke anger. And I, I don't see that going away. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about, you know, they the there used to be these three, you know, 
whatever functions of elected people, you know, credit cleaning and position taking and ad advertising. And now they have taunting, right? Taunting each other, <laughs> which is, un you know, it's, and it's gone like to this whole new level, right? Like where, you know, Trump was the taunter in chief and it was like, so baby, right? Like it was, you know, ridiculous. Like, you know, yeah. You know, fourth grade level taunts, little Marco, right? You know, even even this is tricky. I mean, Nathan could could tell you better than I can, but you know, you got to think back to the Civil War, and you know, I, I think there's probably some partisan taunting going on there as well. So, you know, I think in some ways history repeats itself, and I think you know there there are parts of our history we would like to not repeat, um, but but That's you know, right. we, Nathan, we don't have a choice. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nathan, tell us about that because you know, I, for about you know two years now, I've been telling people. Yeah, I don't think this election is going to have very little to do with 2016. 2016 is widely misunderstood by like the, the pundit class, like the election Twitter 538 world, right? Where they're really focused on something we know quite a bit about, which is the you know realignment, demographic realignment going on in the electorate. Um, and so they, you know, they're really focused on, oh, white working class voters. You're like, yeah, that dude, yeah, whatever. Right. And, and they ignore the, um, just kind of like the freak circumstances that drove so much of 2016. Right. Um, what this election was always going to have much more in common with was the civil war elections, right? Those elections that were, you know, much more about the entire future of democracy. Like they had questions of, you know, succession, North and South, factionalism on the ballot. So what do you think, having having written a book on the Civil War, you know, what do you guys think? You yeah, know? so the a lot of people forget that obviously slavery was the the key point of contention that, that led to that horrific and uh, incomparable violence in our history. But what sparked this was a presidential election in which one side refused to accept result. And that was a, a partisan difference. It was Southern Democrats rejecting Lincoln's election as the first Republican president. And so uh, obviously that's a, a model that is in many people's minds as you have a, a president now who's rejecting a, the result of a presidential election. Um, back then they didn't say it was fraud. They just said, we don't have to accept this and we're going to just break off because we can. And obviously they couldn't and didn't. Um, that's a model that we don't want to, to follow. And I don't think that there's too much concern, uh, too much realistic chance of, of any kind of mass violence on that scale. But of course, we're still concerned about low-level violence, which could still kill many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think to be clear too, I'm not thinking we're going to have some giant war, right? Um, nothing that will interrupt espresso right <laughs> you know no walking dead level event um but to me i mean you know call me a crazy liberal you know a hundred people dead in detroit or something like that that's that's not acceptable because they didn't have to die and just like the victims of covid i mean th this is a slow moving genocide right i mean look at what's happening in the uk they've canceled christmas boris johnson who's no you know raging liberal cancels christmas literally makes it illegal for people to gather in each other's homes that's as draconian a measure you can possibly imagine this you know from from a conservative leader prime minister in the uk to take and he's doing it you know they don't have three hundred and twenty thousand dead people over there right and that's why they don't have 320 because their body politic their collective culture won't accept 300,000 dead people. And ours does because our, our half of our system at least is morally bankrupted and enough where it's as a leader that, you know, has led us to that. So it, it capable of leading us to violence in, in certain areas, at least of America, you know, and, and it really drives me nuts because it won't be the areas that, you know, the, the it will be areas that, you know, like always that don't deserve it the most, you know, <laughs> and, you know, uh, I don't know. It just sucks, you know. So, Liliana, what do you think about that? Is your because we got to wrap it up. So what do you think? Like, um, you know, 
we're going to be three months from now in March, you know, we'll be two months in theory into the Biden administration. We'll be looking back at this podcast thinking, yeah, we were really, we, we, we were, we were worried about, we were too worried and it was all good. Or will we be, damn, we really should have been more worried. Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, it's, it's always better to, to prepare for the worst, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind right now and for the next month is that uh, the people who are most apt to respond to this election with violence don't believe it's over yet. Mm-hmm. And they will not believe that it's over until January 20th. And on that day, their worlds will be turned upside down. I mean, they will, reality will (laughs) happen, you know. Uh, And so we're not dealing with the people, we're not dealing with, you know, people who are psychologically rejecting the election and know that they've lost, right? They're still fighting right now. And they're fighting within the rules. Uh, Once they have in, uh, inalterably lost, that's when we can expect them to start fighting outside of the rules, I would, I would expect. Um, so that's, you know, I don't think that we can say for sure what's going to happen after January 20th, but I do think it's going to be a breaking point. I think that it, something is going to change because there will be a Biden administration and people will feel like losers. And that is, that's what Trump did. You know, what Trump tapped into his entire 2016 campaign was telling people who felt like losers that they weren't going to be losers anymore. They were going to be winners. He was going to make them win again. And if they become losers again, then that's going to be a huge threat to their sense of self and to their sense of like their place in the world. Um, And if also then they're also, you know, unemployed because of this entire global pandemic and maybe losing people in their family, right? That th- those are the ingredients for re- really, really radical. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, my God, yeah. And and they have a man who has no sense of responsibility, you know? I mean, there's just absolutely no doubt in my mind that he would say a paragraph or a sentence that would be the worst thing to say. <laughs> On that happy note, I'll remind you, I never get asked out to dinner twice. So, <laughs> so great to have a sat, a sit down and speak with, um, you know, such amazingly talented political scientist, you know, in the poli side world, all like rock stars that people would be like, Oh my God, I got to talk to Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo and Stephen Webster. And, you know, I know that sounds weird to, to the general public, but you know, it's just how the the academy rolls. You know, we have our nerd rock stars too, so we're gonna celebrate them. You know, <laughs> I always tell you know, my kid, I'm like, I'm a nerd star. It's it's like you know, we have no money. You know, <laughs> it's it's good though because you can still go to the grocery store. You know, no one recognizes you. you know? It's like being a member of Congress. You know, ah, boom. All right, so uh, thanks for joining me guys you guys on the inaugural audio only pod and uh thanks and uh good luck and and i'll I'll see you guys on the other side of january 20th